This week's show is sponsored by Datadog. Built by engineers and for engineers, Datadog is a SaaS-based monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. Sign up for a free trial and get a free t-shirt at datadog.com slash datanauts. There are times when the Data Nuts Battlecruiser stumbles upon an extremely mineral-rich asteroid that we mine for precious metals, rare minerals, and gently used long-play albums from the 60s. But hey, you know, for everyone else that doesn't have 70 billion galactic credits to buy a Battlecruiser, what other mining options are available? Oh, oh, wait, I know. What about those cryptocurrencies we keep hearing so much about? Apparently, it just requires the juice from one bottle of old jank spirit to... Oh, oh, nope, nope, that's not right. I just described an ingredient in the pan-galactic gargle blaster. Howdy, I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall, and with me is my co-host, who can play the drum portion of a speed metal song on a rotary phone, if you give him long enough, Ethan Banks. He is at EC Banks on Twitter, and this is the Data Nuts Podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packapushers.net. By the way, Ethan, do you have a recording of one of your latest speed metal song playing on a rotary phone? Uh, yeah, but that's all uh, private stash right now. You have to be uh, subscribed to my uh, secret premium content library in order to have access to that uh, that stuff. Got to have so. the central handshake. Right? That's What's right. the password on the, exactly. on the door? Well, I, I promise you this is going to be a nice and nerdy and techie episode on something that I'm relatively new to at a depth level, cryptocurrencies. And we've got a lot of different things to tease apart in that subset. So let's introduce our guests and get right to it. So first, I'd like to introduce Mark D'Agostino. Welcome to the show. Who are you? What do you do? Thanks for having us on. I'm a managing partner in the enterprise group at Consensus, which is a venture production studio of sorts in the blockchain space, mainly focused on the Ethereum stack. I have a background in management consulting, spent about 10 years at Deloitte. I built out their blockchain market offering a couple of years ago. Then I left to go build out an enterprise group at Consensus. I've been delivering large enterprise client engagements to Fortune 500s, a handful of governments and two central banks around the world over the past 20 months or so. In the past five or six months, been working with Carl and Alex, our fellow co-founders on the Grid Plus project, which I'm sure we'll dive into in greater detail. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, absolutely. Carl, would you like to introduce yourself to the show? I'm the director of energy at Consensus. Prior to starting with Consensus earlier this year, I actually worked as a consultant for Consensus as a subject matter expert for some of their energy projects. Prior to that, I got my PhD doing research on advanced battery materials. And prior to that, I started a consortium at a place called Southwest Research Institute, was the Energy Storage System Evaluation and Safety Consortium. And we did pre-competitive testing on large format lithium-ion batteries for both transportation and energy storage applications. That's kind of how I got initially started in the energy space. The consortium had a dozen members from four different continents. Yeah. Cool. So just minor things. No, no big deal. Just, just small things here or there. Wink, wink. And last but not least, Alex, would you like to introduce yourself to the show, please? Yeah. Hey, this is Alex Miller. I am a Ethereum developer for Consensus and the, the tech lead of the Grid Plus project. I joined Consensus about a year ago and have been working on some of the energy projects that Mark alluded to with Mark and with others within Consensus, which has kind of coalesced into what Grid Plus is now. Before being an Ethereum developer, which is a rapidly growing industry. I had a background in physical sciences, but became a software developer because I thought that was more fun. Is it more fun? 
I think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just making sure, you know, like it was kind of open-ended where we were hanging off there. So as y'all are introducing yourselves, I heard a lot of terms that we want to go deeper into, but I feel like starting at the beginning is probably a good idea. So I guess I'll address this to Mark and we'll go from there. Can you baseline an understanding of cryptocurrency? You know, what is this thing? Sure. So if we rewind the clock back to November 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto, an individual or a group, released something called the Bitcoin White Paper. Then January 3rd, 2009, he instantiated the Genesis block. So really, he described this peer-to-peer electronic cash system. It basically, the fundamental like innovation there was that he found a way to incentivize human behavior to go do something which basically secured the protocol itself. So everyone's able to point their hash power on their computers to essentially find a way to add transactions to the network and be rewarded for doing so. So what these cryptocurrencies really do is they are these networks wherein anyone can choose to participate, like you're not forced to, it's totally open and decentralized. And they allow you to have bare instruments where you don't necessarily need a third party to confirm anything or any kind of intermediary. So we can have direct peer-to-peer transactions between two individuals without anyone in the world from stopping us. I guess that's kind of a high level overview. We can dive in deeper of how it actually works at a technical level, if you'd like. Yeah, take us right into that, because uh, I think part of what you were alluding to was mining. So how do we mine that currency? What does that mean? And then uh, the concept of proof of work closely related to that, uh, I think all dives back in nicely to what you were just saying. Yeah. So in the early days, Satoshi had written, I, I think in the white paper, one CPU cycle, one vote. So his idea was that anyone around the world can just run this Bitcoin core software and they can put their CPU cycles towards hashing transactions and doing what you were saying, this proof of work, proving that basically what you're doing is is hashing transactions against each other, hashing it to the previous block and then picking a random number. It's kind of like this giant guessing game, uh, which is called a nonce that gives you a digest. If that digest has certain characteristics that the community has agreed upon as being valid, then you solve the valid block. That's kind of all that's happening over and over again. And we're at the point where it's like exa hashes per second going on in the Bitcoin network. So we started with just CPUs, and then people realized you can parallelize a whole bunch of it. So they moved on to GPUs. Then thereafter, this mining kind of industry really rapidly grew, and people started making these ASICs, these application-specific integrated circuits, where all they do is mine Bitcoin. Um, so you have these like server fields in areas of low-cost energy, where basically all you're doing is turning energy plus your compute power into trying to find a solution to the guessing game. And what's really neat about this guessing game is that it is constantly self-correcting. So the more participants on the system who are trying to find the problem, the more difficult that problem will become. So every 2016 solutions or 2016 blocks that are being discovered, the system will self-correct. So if the block time is, say, like average of two minutes kind of happening, that means there's way more people. There's about five times as many people who are mining it than what the previous difficulty level was. So it'll self-adjust to make it more difficult and always target a 10-minute block time in Bitcoin. So that's kind of how proof of works. Okay, so you've got the same amount of financial wherewithal within the system. Uh, you know, no matter what, you just you're spreading out that compute, making it roughly equal to finish a successful computation. So the more people that are involved, the more difficult you know, the guessing game is going to be. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That target that you're trying to find, this digest that is considered valid. It's a certain number of leading zeros that need to be discovered in this digest. So as more and more people try to you know, mine the network is the more hash power joins the network. Basically, that problem just extends out with more and more zeros that are needed. So the game will always self-correct. And it's really not even a financial measure. The price of Bitcoin 
doesn't matter at all for this. But if you think of it as like if the price all of a sudden collapsed, certain individuals might not find it profitable to continue mining and they might turn off their operations because they'll be saving electricity then. So it kind of self-corrects itself over time. One more thing to follow up on. You mentioned graphics cards and ASICs. Now, graphics cards, that's pretty common. You, it's pretty easy to do searches and for articles about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and mining and come up with the graphics cards applications. There's a quote here we've got from an article that says computer hardware retailers are sold out of most AMD RX 570 and RX 580 graphics cards models, according to now in stock. You know, they've sold so many of those cards. AMT stock is actually going up as a result. And I also hear about NVIDIA, um, some of their chipsets being used as well. But ASICs, how recent is that, that people are actually building their custom silicon just for uh, Bitcoin mining? Yeah, it's actually kind of funny, Chris. I remember last year at that Vail conference where we had met, I had suggested to a bunch of people that it might make sense to start picking up some AMD or NVIDIA stock because Mm -hmm. it kind of seemed that a ton of people were trying to move on to mining Ethereum which GPUs are, are great for, uh, and there currently aren't ASICs there because I believe they make it memory-hardened and you don't really get much of a benefit from using an ASIC. Um, but the rise in Bitcoin and the selling out of all the GPUs are actually unrelated there, Ethan, because everyone has to use ASICs now if you're going to mine the Bitcoin network. I'd say that's been oh, wow. the case for maybe three years or so. <laughs> okay, oh, boy. And there have been other cryptos where it's gotten to the point that there were such vast improvements that ASICs could be made and designed to give you such an edge over people running GPUs. Litecoin comes to mind. Ethereum doesn't have that problem, I'd say. So Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, was pretty brilliant in designing a solution that I believe is memory hardened so that it's difficult to design an ASIC that would give you like orders of magnitude improvement compared to just using a GPU. So everyone kind of just picked up all the stock GPUs and plugs them in when they're going to mine Ethereum. So Alex, you mentioned being an Ether developer. I guess before we tackle that, when I think cryptocurrency, like the first thing that comes to my head being the layman is Bitcoin. Because I see, you know, living in the San Francisco Bay Area, I see Bitcoin ATMs and other cockamamie weird stuff like that. I guess this is to the group. What did Bitcoin do right that other attempts prior to it get wrong? Because it seems to be pretty popular these days. At least I've heard of it. I think the the thing that Bitcoin got right was that it merged all of these different ideas that had been propagated throughout all of these different communities for, for several decades. It combined cryptography, it combined computer science and economics, all of these different disparate ideas into this very, very novel solution. So it was the first cryptocurrency that really solved the, the trust problem. There were several attempts by a group called the Cypherpunks, which was essentially a series of mailing lists where people would talk about this idea of a currency that was not operated by like a government or a central authority. And Bitcoin was kind of the first implementation of, of that idea that was successful. So all of the blockchain itself comes from Bitcoin. There are many, many currencies now that use the blockchain. Ethereum is another one. Bitcoin is still working today, but it has some severe limitations. So I mentioned that I'm an Ethereum developer. It's pretty hard to be a Bitcoin developer because when you work with Bitcoin, you're working with a state that's nothing but basically account balances. So the entire state is a series of unspent transaction outputs is what they call them. With Ethereum, you have a general, a generalized state that can be operated on with the Turing complete language. So one of the things Mark was talking about with respect to the Ethereum mining being memory hard, the reason is that all of this information is stored in a a directed acyclic graph. 
And that's pretty large. And that gets stored in memory when miners are, you know, propagating these blocks and mining new blocks. Meaning we got to cram a lot of information, ideally into DRAM or or some kind of volatile memory, because it has a very quick retrieval time to, to crunch. Correct. Yeah. So you can't do, it's not purely compute. A lot of it is leveraging memory that you have on your system. So all of these things make Ethereum a much nicer currency slash platform to develop on. And there are a growing number of Ethereum developers. And what that means is essentially integrating your application, be it a web application or, or some other kind with the Ethereum network. So I like to think of the Ethereum network as essentially a public utility. Uh, You can outsource security, you can do transactions on it instead of a traditional payments processor. Most of these applications are financial in nature, though. Interesting. I remember when I was doing some research specifically on Bitcoin and kind of why it took off, two things came to mind or, or came up that I thought were interesting. One, the inventor being a person or group didn't really intend it to be a currency, which I thought was interesting, and they go into the, the blockchain and whatnot, which we'll discuss further on in the show. But the other one was that it's a good payment system, but it's not fast. Like transactional speed is a real thing here. And so it wouldn't be something you'd want to use for like a credit card payment system because that relies on super low latency, really quick response. But at the same time, the cost to use the system is relatively minuscule. And there is that distributed nature of it. So any comments around those being, is that just an advantage of Bitcoin or is that kind of all cryptocurrencies? I would offer that it's not inexpensive to use. It's actually getting more and more expensive. The more people who are trying to use the network, you're basically, you have to pay transaction fees to try to entice the miners to include your transaction in that next block. And if you are paying less than the others who are willing to pay more, you might kind of get left off until there's space in in a later block. So in Bitcoin, at least in the Bitcoin main chain, there's a one megabyte cap on how many transactions can fit. This means we get maybe three and a half transactions per second. Compare that, like you said, to something like Visa that can do 40,000 transactions per second. It'll never be that kind of global currency system, at least at the protocol level. Maybe you can build layer two solutions on top of it. There's a whole ton of really exciting work going on with that, things like Lightning Network and whatnot. But I don't know if it was designed to be a currency system or not. And I actually don't know if it ever needs to upgrade, frankly because it doesn't need to be this global payments network. I mean, it does one thing really well, and that is I can send money anywhere in the world at any given time across borders, and pretty much no one can stop me. So it maybe doesn't need that same speed level that a credit card network can have. It it offers different uh, kind of benefits. The way you guys have talked about Bitcoin, it's almost like you've put it in a in a negative light, like it's like it was an outstanding proof of concept. It does what it does, but this is it. You know, it's got a finite set of things that Bitcoin is going to be able to do, and we need to look in other directions if we want to build a blockchain based global payment system, perhaps with the sort of transaction frequency like you can have on a you know on a big payment card network. Am I reading you guys right? I think yeah. that's fair. We so also I, fight it as a team all the time about this, but go ahead, Alex. Yeah. Actually, one thing we, we don't fight about as a team is that the, the blockchain is just by nature very inefficient because you need to have every person on the network validating these transactions to, to keep the miners honest so that they're not basically producing incorrect blocks. So that's very expensive and you have to come to consensus every every block with the entire network and that that's just always going to be more expensive than than using a database or something like that i think what we're going to see in the future and what we're already starting to see is something that mark mentioned a minute ago which is known as a layer two solution 
when you when you have a, like a set of blockchain actors, they're really just represented by private keys, so cryptographic key pairs. In order to make a transaction, they have to sign some message with that private key. It can be submitted to the blockchain, and then a miner would would attach that that transaction to the next block if if the person paid a sufficient fee. When you look at user adoption and, and just onboarding all these users, that your blocks quickly fill up and the fees go up and it kind of no longer becomes tenable. I don't think there are many people anymore who are advocating putting everything on chain. So what, what, where do we go from there? There's a couple different ideas out there, many of them being worked on in the Ethereum community. So one thing that I really like is called a, a state channel, or, or we can just call it a payment channel in the case of Bitcoin. So a payment channel is, is basically a way to offload a bunch of transactions that only get settled at the end. So what you would do is as a user with a service, you would deposit some amount of money up front, and then the recipient would not have access to that money until you signed messages that basically allowed them to take that money out of the channel. So for instance, if this is something we're working on with Grid Plus, so like a customer would deposit $50 up front um, into that channel, we don't have access to it, but maybe we send them a bill an hour later, we'll get into how all, all this works. Let's say we send them a bill, they owe us a dollar, right? They can use that that same key that would that would be used to, to send transactions on the blockchain to sign a message saying that they're willing to pay us a dollar. Um, they send that to us over HTTP. We can verify that we are able to use that message to close out the payment channel and take that dollar from the payment channel at any time that we want. So we don't have to use, we don't have to play that onto the blockchain. We can just hold on to that message. Later, the user can send us another message pledging $2 and then one for three and then one for four. And eventually we use one of those messages to close out the payment channel. So this could be 100,000 messages over the period of a year, right? Depending on the service. And what you have is two actual on-chain transactions, one to open the channel and one to close it. So we're going to see a lot more scaling solutions like this. But essentially what you're saying is correct, at least in my opinion, which is Bitcoin served very well as a proof of concept. It won't scale. I just don't think it's possible with the technology to scale to a user base that, that you would see with something like a Facebook. But with layer two solutions, I think the, the future looks pretty bright in that regard. And scaling is about doing different sorts of operations with the blockchain and the blockchain's a bottleneck. And so you, you take certain of those transactions off the blockchain in order to get the scale while still having the decentralized and authentication benefits that the blockchain is giving you. Right. So we always want to design these solutions with, you know, strong cryptography in mind um, so that these things are verifiable uh, mathematically so that we still don't have to rely on any trusted intermediaries. was interesting that uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain and stuff, it's not all about Bitcoin. Bitcoin wasn't even intended to be a global currency system. You get all this news about Bitcoin and it's really popular and people talk about it all the time. So it's kind of the poster child for cryptocurrency, but it's not really where it's all at with this stuff. Blockchain technology is going to drive a lot of other use cases, including other currencies like the guys have been talking about. What grabbed your attention, Mr. Wall? You know, I think it was Mark that said, send money anywhere in the world and no one can stop me. And my immediate, like, I, I kind of froze for a moment, like, wow, that's 
That sounds really good and really horrible at the same time. For example, I've seen folks trying to phase out cash, you know, cold hard currency because it's hard to trace. And you know, if you've ever seen the show Narcos, that's how they pay for everything for illegal commerce. But at the same time, I think about all the other good benefits where there's barriers to get money or other resources to people who really need it. So there's certainly a non-technical aspect for pondering for sure. Hey, Datanauts listeners, we are going to take a truly quick break from our show to honor our noble sponsor, Datadog. Datadog is a SaaS-based monitoring platform that provides dev and ops teams with a unified view of all their systems, apps, and services. Thousands of organizations rely on Datadog to track the performance of more than 200 technologies, including Amazon Web Services, Chef, Docker, and MySQL, all things that we have covered on this show. With built-in dashboards, algorithmic alerts, and end-to-end request tracing, Datadog helps teams monitor every layer of their stack in one place. Start a free trial today and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt at datadog.com slash datanauts. One more time for that free trial and a free t-shirt, go to datadog.com slash datanauts. All right, gentlemen, we talked a lot about blockchains in the first part of this show. So let's get into this in more detail. We've got a graphic here that we're looking at in our show notes. And uh, listeners, if you go up to packetpushers.net and find this datanauts episode, you can look at that graphic as well. In here, we've got a how it works kind of graphic for blockchains. Can you guys walk us through that? Give us a high level of how blockchains work for people that are new to it and haven't heard of it before. Sure. So looking at this graphic, you essentially... If we're going to assume that uh, you're an actor on the system and the blockchain already is instantiated, let's say you're trying to make a new transaction, you will essentially have a balance if it's Ethereum in your public address and everyone in the world can see and verify that address that it has that balance. We all see the same state of history at any given time. And if this is Bitcoin, I'll have a, a UTXO, as Alex mentioned before, this unspent transaction output. So what I can do with my private key, I make a signature on that public address and basically say, I want to move x dollars or x coins or whatever from mark to chris and then i will blast that out in the network i'll connect to all the other nodes and that transaction will basically sit in this mempool waiting to be mined into existence in bitcoin they're using proof of work in ethereum they're currently using proof of work later on they're going to switch over to proof of stake which we can talk about but essentially the miners are playing this validation guessing game and they are including my transaction amongst all the others who are currently sitting in that mempool and in bitcoin they're taking enough of them that'll fit into that one megabyte block size because the more they can cram in that's more transaction fees they're getting. Because along with my transaction I'm sending, I'm also including a very small amount as a fee to pay for the miner who solves the successful block. So whichever miner doing this this crazy big guessing game finds a valid solution, they will then send that solution to everyone in the world saying, hey guys, I found a valid block. You know, We're adding this to the blockchain. It references the previous block and you should now start building on top of mine. And one of the really neat things about this is that when I bring this up to people, I often get, why doesn't someone else like Alex say just he pretended like he created that block and it shouldn't be mine, the reward going to me. I actually include a special transaction in that block called a Coinbase, where I basically tell the system to create new currency out of thin air and pay me. So the miners get a reward for whoever finds this block. So in Bitcoin right now, it's 12.5 Bitcoin. And every four years that gets halved. So the last Bitcoin will be mined into existence in the year 2140, roughly. Um, and then like three years from now, it'll drop from 12.5 to 6.25. And as of right now, at the price of roughly $4,000, that's a pretty good chunk of change for finding that block. 
So once the, the miners validate that all the transactions that are in this block have appropriate signatures and they find a valid solution, you know, it gets added to the blockchain and it's pretty much just on to the next block. So as an end user, you don't really see any of this. All you know is that you're saying send X coins of whatever from, from your wallet to someone else's address and roughly 10 minutes later, it gets added to the blockchain. So that's kind of how it works. Now, one big thing I wanted to verify here is that the way you describe the blockchain in this system, it is not a centralized system that we all have clients and we refer to this. We actually have copies, if we're participating in this network, on our systems ourselves. Everybody's got their own copy of the blockchain, and that's is that that's the ledger? Yep, that's absolutely right. And at any point, you can choose to, to fork off and kind of create your own version of history if you want. Um, if you disagree with kind of an upgrade that someone pushes forth, or if they want to like make changes to the protocol, you can continue on with this old blockchain, and the economic majority will basically rule out and determine you know which blockchain with which protocols has the most value, and that typically moves forward, and the other one will either get deprecated or be you know followed by this ardent small following who don't necessarily have the economic like majority behind them. So it's an opt-in type of system, and at any time you can choose to change the rules, but the difficulty is getting the entire community to all upgrade along with you. Because like you said, you're all seeing the same state of history and running the same code at all times. Listening to this description, I'm amazed this thing even works. It sounds so <laughs> crazy to, to me. And it's like, oh, yeah, everyone just kind of pays themselves. And it's basically like a big video game. And you're solving puzzles. And it sounds more like a Laura Croft video game for making money. Which is pretty cool. That's just, that's not a question. That's just my mind being blown here. I do have questions kind of from a, an infrastructure engineering perspective. So thinking of blockchain as a giant ledger, you know, basically a big distributed database, how do we ensure consistency? Who's performing maintenance and health checks and consistency checks on the database? Because they, they tend to need some TLC, you know, if it's distributed. And, you know, if there's a bug or some kind of issue with the data, like who owns fixing that? Are, are these issues? Are, are they being solved? You know, where, where are we at on that? It's actually interesting. There was a relatively contentious problem last year with a, a contract on the Ethereum blockchain wherein it did not operate as per what the community thought it was going to do. Because once you once you deploy this code that sits on the blockchain, like anyone can interact with it and it's, it's executable, right? So someone actually found a bug where they were able to do this recursive call and and funnel out lots of money into their account. So like Oops. you said, what happens when something goes wrong? Well, in this case, it went to like a community vote and roughly 92% of the people who voted, voted to essentially take the money out of this, this hacker's account and refund it to all the people who were <laughs> harmed in it. Um, but there was also this ardent following who basically said code is law. And it doesn't matter that, you know, someone found an exploit, you know, the code was written that way and that exploit was part of that. So they kept the old chain. They followed, you know, their version of history where the hacker has the money. So it's very difficult, kind of what you're saying, when there is a problem on this network, how do you upgrade? Uh, it's actually one of the reasons why I, I was of the opinion that Bitcoin would never hard fork. And I was clearly wrong because two weeks ago they did just that. But with Ethereum, one of the nice things about it is that there is this kind of benevolent dictator slash leadership there in the Ethereum Foundation. And the people are absolutely fantastic. And there's a roadmap they put forth. And before the Ethereum chain even launched, like they had a whole plan of here are all the upgrades we plan to make from today, moving all the way to the point where we're going to leave proof of work and go to proof of stake, and then leave this kind of like monolithic blockchain to build a sharded database. So there is a roadmap. And for people who are bought into the community, they are kind of happy to follow that roadmap, and they are willing to upgrade, and they're willing to break things and fix them. 
Bitcoin doesn't really have that kind of governance structure in place, which makes it really difficult to to change anything in the system because Bitcoin Core is a, a bunch of fantastic developers and engineers, but they recognize that they're working with production software that has, I don't know, $65 billion market cap. So they don't want to break anything. They want to move as slowly and rationally as possible, which I think is prudent for sure. I, I can see the hand shaking a little bit like, D- should I commit this to prod? I don't I don't know. It's a $65 billion <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> potential push. Yeah, I need some peer reviews on this. I can see that. This is Alex here. I just wanted to hop in and kind of highlight a difference between developer bugs and bugs in the actual system itself. So in Ethereum, we have the Ethereum Foundation, who is largely responsible for protocol development. And then there's a bunch of sort of application developers. I'm part of the, the latter category. So what Mark was describing was a bug in an application. So the, the underlying protocol f- functioned exactly as it should have. Um, what happened was that the the smart contract, that's, that's what we call them, they're little scripts that run in Ethereum. The smart contract was not written properly and some hacker exploited that layer of it. So so at the at the protocol level, to answer your original question of you know sort of who ensures consistency, I think it, it might help to talk about how blockchain is, is sort of made up, like what this thing is. Lots of people throw around the term blockchain, but in reality, it's really just a, a data structure. It's not actually that exciting. It's just some data in these blocks. We talked about miners minting new blocks, and blocks are really just sets of transactions. In the case of Bitcoin, it's the transactions themselves are just moving balances from one user to another. In Ethereum, it's a little more complicated. Each transaction, you can think of it as an atomic state update to some part of the state. And then those get grouped together in these blocks, and that whole block gets hashed into this 64-byte string, basically. And that, that's called the block header. And within the block, it references the, the previous block. So what you have is like a header that references the hash of the previous block and then sort of the rest of the transactions in that block. So so the hashes are linking these um, blocks sort of like on a time scale. That's where you get the blockchain. There is a group of participants on this network who are responsible for verifying that these blocks are essentially consistent all throughout history. And these are just called full nodes. There are about 25,000 of them on the Ethereum network, and I think something like 10,000 on the Bitcoin network. These are users who are running just the client. They're not mining. They're All they're doing is validating and, and ensuring that their version of history is correct. And if there are any inconsistencies, that's when you, you start to get sort of divides in the pools in, in the network itself. But we don't see those very often. And this is sort of something that's being done all the time is the point. Well, there's still there's got to be occasional breakups in in the network where you've got a client or two clients that fall off the internet for some amount of time. They connect back to the internet, connect back to the cryptocurrency network they're on, and then they've got a database, a blockchain that doesn't match. That temporary partition needs to be resolved. So is it those hosts that help them resolve that with that consistency, or is there some other process that is followed? You can get the updated state of the blockchain from other full nodes on the network at any other time. But you actually hit on something else that you know there are going to be inconsistencies. And they actually happen every day. And we call them like, you know, forks. Like if, if you imagine, Chris, if you're in, in China and I'm in, I don't know, New York and we're both mining on the network, you might find a valid block at time X. And I also find a valid block at time X. 
And then what we do is we both propagate it to all the people. And the nodes, you know, they do a verification. They check, yep, you're, the ones around you, the nodes who connect to you, see that every transaction there is totally valid. And they start building on top of that. The ones who are connected to me, they see, oh, everything in mine is totally valid too. And they start building on mine. So we actually have two competing chains for the time being. And whoever finds the next valid block on top of either my chain or your chain, that will now be the new longest chain. So everyone who was building on the on the previous one who didn't find another new valid block, that'll kind of be deprecated off and orphaned. So there are forks that pretty much happen every day, but they never really last more than one or two blocks in kind of length before the majority kind of gloms onto the, the newest, longest block, newest, longest chain. Got it. So it's a, it's a consensus that ends up getting formed as that happens, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Everybody's been talking about the blockchain and it being a data structure, but we haven't specifically said what that data structure looks like. And I think to sort of understand it and demystify blockchain, uh, it, it's good to just address that topic. So when we think about a typical bank and how they hold an account, they use a process called double ledger accounting. So it's basically you have two ledgers, one's a credit, one's a debit. And every transaction or every movement of money has to have a credit and a corresponding debit to, to actually work. So you can essentially trace back money in the double ledger. And, and this has been sort of a standardized method of accounting for a long period of time. The entire financial system is built upon it. You're giving me like creepy flashbacks to my MBA because I minored in accounting and I didn't enjoy <laughs> yeah. a lot of those courses. <laughs> but yeah, I know what yeah, you're talking about. So it's, it's interesting. And... The other thing that's interesting about it is those double ledgers that exist don't exist as a book, right? They exist electronically, and they exist electronically at your bank, but nowhere else. So if you go to your bank and you say, hey, I want $100 and everything's working correct, and you have $100 in your account, you can get cash or you know, you can use that money and send it electronically to pay for something. What blockchain does is two things. It adds a third column to that ledger. And so that third column essentially is a checksum. So every time a transaction is made, the nodes are validating transactions. And so they're they're checking to make, essentially auditing every transaction as it's being made before it's recorded into the block. The second difference that happens is that everybody has a copy. So instead of being dependent upon a single counterparty to understand what my account balance is and be able to spend or redeem my funds, I can broadcast a message to any one of the nodes and they act as the payment processor essentially to process that payment to whom I'm sending the payment. So in a lot of ways, it's a very parallel to essentially how electronic banking works. It's just a distributed system that has a better method and a more consistent method of auditing and making sure payments are correct. So a block is essentially a cap in time. And what that does is it makes sure that I can't double spend a balance. So if I just had this, this account and I could sign messages against my account that essentially acts as a transfer of funds, I could send sign messages to two different people, which would essentially be like sending money to two different people. I'm signing a message saying, here's five ether. I could simultaneously send that message to somebody else. So both of you think you have a valid message. And what the block does is it chooses one of those messages and records in time that that $5 is no longer mine to spend. 
it's now that person's money to spend. And that's essentially the functioning of the block. It's, it's just time stamping the messages. And that's how you sort of prevent double spending of funds. So I just wanted to color in, in a more simplistic way the data structure, I guess, that we're talking about. No, that that's good because obviously, you know, thinking back to the bank situation, that is the trust. You trust that the bank knows it because they have your money and they're the authority on what you've spent, what you haven't. And in this case, there is no single entity that's controlling, you know, essentially freezing the database, making a change, you know, unfreezing it, et cetera. That has to be done in a distributed nature. So that does make sense to point out. Okay, my takeaway was I like the we found a bug issue and then sides are drawn like code is law and this guy exploited the system, you know, refund the money. I found that story pretty interesting and it really highlights the need for transparency and, you know, like we were talking about public roadmaps. It makes that extremely important for this sort of project because it is, it's all distributed. Therefore, the decision making has to be kind of transparent and public in nature. What about you, Ethan? Oh, I yeah, kind of similar. I mean, the distributed decentralized database idea, it's, it's, it's really powerful. And it's not just for the technology, right? Because we, we talk about distributed computing on this, uh, this show all the time. So it's not just the technology that's cool, but it's also the political power that's implied if the citizens of the world decided to get behind it. So instead of using the Internet simply as a transport for traditional electronic financial transactions via the centralized the, and, and globally regulated system that we're all familiar with, you end up with a model for money that parallels the Internet's model for knowledge. That's incredible if you start reflecting on it. And if you've, with that idea, they actually explore that in season two of Mr. Robot, which if you haven't seen that, go see that. Uh, cryptocurrency becomes a big part of the script there as the world's financial systems uh, begin to collapse. Really thought-provoking stuff here that's grounded in reality. We're talking about this technology in use in the world today. Okay, now that the Datanauts audience are all pseudo-experts in Bitcoins and Ether and blockchain, I mean, we could just go out and just, we can start contributing code right now, I'm sure. <laughs> wink, wink. Let's switch gears. Let's talk about this project that you're working on called Grid Plus. And it was ultimately, I think, something that, Mark, you were bringing up when we were talking when I met you a couple weeks ago. Tell us about this project. What are your goals for it? What is it doing? Because I know it ties in pretty much everything we've just talked about thus far. Yeah, at a really high level, what we're trying to do is democratize the access to wholesale energy markets so that consumers, rather than buying energy from their utility at 100% markup, can now participate directly in, in wholesale markets and pay the prevailing rate at any given time. So we use the Ethereum blockchain for that. We set up special kinds of state channels or payment channels that Alex talked about before with each of our customers, and we allow them to pay every 15 minutes for the energy in, that they're using in their home uh, directly to us, uh, and we pass along them the wholesale costs that are currently going on in the in the electricity markets. Wait, 15 minute increments, meaning it's kind of following a nice smooth curve as the prices change. You're not having to buy ahead of time, or well, you can buy ahead of time in day ahead okay. markets, which you know if you're able to project out your usage, you can probably get uh, slightly better rates because it's usually less costly than in the real time markets. But the way that the smart meters kind of update the state is on a 15-minute basis. So that's kind of whatever we use in, in that given market. All right. So I kind of have a glimmer of the motivation behind it. But you know, for the team, you know, what's the motivation to set up a project like this? Although it sounds like VC gold, you're talking about the energy market and, and crypto and Bitcoin, and those are all very hot. But also uh, the kind of the side question of that, why Ethereum 
being that I think you've pointed out a few drawbacks with Bitcoins, but you know, when and at what point did you say Ethereum is the way to go and, and what are the advantages to using it for your system? So first of all, Consensus has been doing projects in the energy space for a, a couple of years here. And a lot of those proofs of concept have coalesced into what we're working on with Grid Plus. Consensus largely works in the Ethereum space. And most of our developers, maybe all of our developers, are, are sort of Ethereum developers. And what that affords us is this whole community of people who are sort of working on the same protocol who have run into similar issues. And what that affords you is a lot of infrastructure that gets put in place. It's a lot of software, utility, sort of tooling infrastructure. So that's the main reason we're using Ethereum, because most of what we're doing is payments. We could use Bitcoin or some other type of cryptocurrency, but there are so many developer tools, so many user tools. The infrastructure in Ethereum, I think, is the best by a mile. Another reason why Ethereum seems to be the logical choice over Bitcoin is that you pretty much need to be an advanced cryptographer to write things at the application layer in Bitcoin. It's extremely difficult, whereas Ethereum, it's just it's very arms open from the community uh, to get up to speed as a developer. It's just so much simpler. If you are competent in JavaScript, you can understand Solidity, which is the most commonly used smart contracting language out there. And it's just to get talent to build out on this kind of platform, it's substantially easier. So it makes life developing like developing this the system much simpler for us. And also a lot of the the ideas behind payment channels and whatnot, they've been around in Bitcoin for a long time, but they're not really fully implemented yet. They require other things, changes to the protocol, upgrades, uh, something called segregated witness, which we seem to be getting soon in Bitcoin, which fi fixes a transaction malleability problem. In Ethereum, we've been building this kind of stuff. We've been using state channels for, I don't know, going on a year now. Like we've been proving this out for two plus years and, and we know it works. So it seems to be the logical path to build upon. It's possible that something better comes along in the future. I kind of doubt it. And that's mainly because I think that any other system that's out there that, that has some kind of new functionality will eventually just make its way into Ethereum anyway, because the community of developers have really attached themselves to this platform more so than any other in the crypto space. So Ether is like Borg. You will be assimilated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, we're seeing it right now. So there's another cryptocurrency out there called Zcash, which is really cool. This guy, Zuko Wilcox, he's fantastic. He basically forked the Bitcoin code base and they added something called ZK Snarks, these zero knowledge, succinct, non-interactive arguments of knowledge. Basically, you can do math on encrypted data, which allows you, allows like myself to send you, say, five Zcash, Chris, and everyone in the system knows that I had a sufficient balance in my account. And I have an appropriate private key signature to that address without actually seeing the signature, seeing the address, or seeing what was moved. So totally encrypted. Everything is completely dark. But you have guarantees that what was sent is actually valid. So we're actually adding that to Ethereum in the next upgrade, probably in the next six weeks or so, which is version one of Metropolis. We're building this ZK snark as a pre-compiled contract into the system. So that's kind of what I mean by it's yeah, it's kind of the Borg, right? It's if you build something you know really great that adds functionality. I think it'll eventually make its way into like the biggest chains. How is this going to translate to the, the to the common man? So we've talked a lot about the, the technology behind this. It's complex. A lot of people are just not steeped in technology, are never going to get it. Even technologists who uh, love this sort of stuff are going to have to work to wrap their brains around how this works. So Grid Plus, you know, for example, how do I as the end user, what do I really need to know to be able to take advantage of it? 
Yeah, I think it'd be a huge failure by us if we required people to try to understand cryptocurrencies to use <laughs> Grid Plus. So we're building an agent device, right? It's this kind of just simple little box that has a general compute environment and a secure enclave to do these ECDSA signatures. So basically, like you can make transactions and blast them out to the Ethereum network in this little secure box. We're hoping that it's as simple as you plug it in like a home router, which most people can set up, and it just does everything on your behalf, and you just have a mobile application to just do simple things like when you want to buy things in advance, buying energy, and you can set parameters for your home. So no one should ever realize that the back end is actually on a blockchain. We want to like abstract all of that. And it just makes our lives easier that it is on a blockchain because we wouldn't be able to do this otherwise. But we're hoping our customers have to like have no insight to that whatsoever. So I'm going to buy a Bolt token with real money and don't care from there as the end consumer about what happens next. Yeah, you basically you prepay for energy. And then as the time goes by and your home is using energy, we're just deducting that from your balance. That's all that you see. Hmm. I want this. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Up down. So I just wanted to throw one thing out there. One of the things that we're bringing into the space that Mark alluded to with the agent is there's actually an outlying sort of security issue with being able to have cryptocurrencies online and accessible all the time, especially if you're talking about having them in sort of a naive user's hands. And what we've proposed is a system, we call it two of three blind key multi-signature system. One part of it's the agent, which facilitates this idea of a blind key. But that security topology is what enables us to create a system which is secure is always online and is essentially unknown to the user. And that's one of the big things I think we're bringing into uh, the space that hasn't necessarily been done to date. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, Alex, what's the long-term vision of a project like this? Like, where do you see it going? Yeah, we have been seeing a lot of energy projects in the blockchain space pop up. And they are mostly focused on peer-to-peer energy trading. And that does happen to be our long-term interest. But we are kind of taking a different approach than, than most uh, projects in the space. We want to sort of infiltrate the market as a traditional utility. So, so your electricity company, rather than using whatever company you're using now, you just sign up for Grid Plus, you get our little agent device, plug it in, um, and you start prepaying for energy. Uh, the benefit to you is that it is at a lower cost. So we want to compete on, on cost alone. That's, that's really our marketing pitch as, as a uh, utility. But long-term, what we're doing here is we're opening users to wholesale markets and the, those prices fluctuate. What you see today is you hear a lot about solar and batteries and this coming wave of distributed generation. And in some places you do see a lot of solar, but what we found is that there aren't a lot of batteries out there on the market. And, and the reason is that there's no economic incentive for most people in most markets to purchase these batteries because you aren't exposed to market fluctuations. So for instance, if, if you wanted to purchase a battery, it's maybe $5,000 up front. And if you are only offered the same rate 24 hours a day, um, there's no reason to put that battery in rather than just selling the energy off of your solar panels back to the grid. So what we want to allow is for people to purchase batteries, purchase or generate energy when it is cheap, and then sell that energy when it becomes more expensive. 
this is sort of introducing normal consumers as rational economic actors who are incentivized to purchase these distributed resources. And we think that the long-term sort of endpoint of that is, is we shift generation away from upstream generators who are mostly carbon-based, and we bring that generation into a more decentralized topology where people are generating locally. And in fact, that is that is more efficient because you get less transmission loss. So it turns out like 38% of energy on your bill is lost due to transmission over long distances. So that's where we want to end up. We want to end up with a more sort of decentralized world of electricity generation. That's only a positive goal. I can't can't argue with that. And I had no idea it was so much loss going on. That's that's pretty horrible. And if, if you're listening to the show and you're like, oh, this Grid Plus thing sounds cool, I agree with you. You can go to gridplus.io or blog.gridplus.io to find out more. So at this point, I'd like to thank you all for joining the show. Mark, Alex, and Carl, really appreciate it. I, I was nerding out quietly you know, on mute, so don't, don't worry. The, the silence was just my mind exploding all over my home office here. For those listening, that's it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter, and my blog is wallnetwork.com, or my delightful friend Ethan is at ECBanks on Twitter, and his blog is ethancbanks.com. For more of our Data Knot shows on infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetbushers.net. You'll find us talking about containers and certifications, cryptocurrency, full stack engineering. It's all there and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your cryptocurrency be bountiful, and your cables be cleanly managed. Thank you.